endlessly do I hear the question, but what is Bitcoin backed by? Bitcoin is a network, a money, a language, a system of rules, and a clock. Bitcoin is backed by truth. It's time for a Guy's Take episode. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Uh, We have got, you know, I've done a couple of episodes recently about Bitcoin's value and how to think of it. And I kind of wanted to do a guy's take bringing all of that together because it is a very, it's a very nuanced topic. And I think most of the time people have a, a, a view of what is valuable and why that actually doesn't make any sense in comparison to actual things in their real life. In a sense, they hold a view of, particularly in the context of money. Money is so deeply misunderstood. Uh, but just really in, in the general sense, most people don't even realize how many intangible virtual things have immense value in our lives. And we generally believe things or hold beliefs about what makes a thing valuable that are contradicted all the time, all the time. But we don't see it because we don't stop and think about it and look and really break down what is value, why is something value, what is a thing backed by. And so I wanted to kind of bring together a lot of the different thoughts, like another way to think about Bitcoin's value, uh, we just did recently a Bitcoin Magazine piece by Rettler, um, and, uh, and there were another couple of recent episodes, but I wanted to kind of bring all these arguments together and give a full picture of... Uh, how to think of Bitcoin's value because it isn't one thing. It is it is a great many things. I think the fact that it is a good money alone is one of its highest values, if not the highest value. But I think we can break down the pieces of what makes a money a money and look at each of those individually and get a deeper understanding of just what that value is and how great it can be. And for some reason, this conversation always gets started from someone who is outside of Bitcoin, desperately trying to understand it, asking, what is Bitcoin backed by? Real quick, before we jump into the main idea of the show, though, uh, let's thank our sponsors really quick for keeping this show alive and keeping me well-fed. And they are swanbitcoin.com the best place for an automatic bitcoin savings plan listen they don't have they do not have shit coins it is no hassle at all setup is really it's like i think it's three steps uh there are no there's no charting nonsense there's just pure bitcoin savings automatically buy automatically withdraw to your keys there is nothing like the comfort you get from knowing that no matter what you do, you have more Bitcoin in your stack this week than you did last week. 
swanbitcoin.com slash guy for my referral. And then there is the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet, cold storage device from Shift Crypto. If you are looking for the equivalent of a vault for your digital gold, that is what this is. A secure hardware wallet is imperative for anyone who has Bitcoin savings. And the BitBox is really just a great device. It's simple and intuitive both to set up and use. Uh, And I stress that a lot, that that's an important thing for not making mistakes and making sure you have a good backup is it has to be easy to use. And it's also a really great place to send your automatic withdrawals from Swan Bitcoin. Wink, wink. Check out both of them at uh, both of our sponsors at guyswan.com. Links to both are right at the top of the page. Oh, and discount code guy gets you 5% off the BitBox. Don't forget about that. Actually, all their stuff. They got like tamper evident bags and some other really cool like security gadgetry. Check them out. Okay. So I want to start this out with what the dollar is backed by. Because I think a lot of the misconception around what is Bitcoin backed by, the the tendency to want to ask that question is because people think the dollar is backed by something. And for the people who do actually understand that the dollar is not backed by gold and hasn't been for a very long time, really since about 1940, I think it's 44 when the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, was put into place because the, excuse me, not 44, but all the way back in 33 with Executive Order 6102, when the United States citizens, when the actual population could not redeem their dollars for gold, and they were also not allowed to have personal gold holdings. It was, simp- it was literally illegal to hold gold in your personal vault. And I can't remember the exact date, but that wasn't undone until I think the late 60s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so there was a long period there. But even during the supposed gold backing of the dollar all throughout the 40s, 50s, and 60s with the Bretton Woods Agreement, it was not a gold backing for the average user. It was not a gold backing for a U.S. citizen. You could not go with your dollars and redeem gold from the Federal Reserve or your bank or the Treasury, no one anywhere would actually pay you for, pay your dollars or redeem your dollars for gold. You were not allowed to. The only quote-unquote people who were allowed to were sovereign states. So only nations that held gold with the United States in the New York, um, you know, in Fort Knox and in New York banks, et cetera, et cetera, I can't remember the exact details of the setup, but they were the physical gold was on it was in the United States. They were holding it there because they had been, uh, you know, blasted. They'd been invaded during World War II, so they were looking for a safe place to hold it. And the United States was it. The United States was defended by an ocean on either side from the 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 prime enemies of the day. So it's hard to call it backed by gold. If the only people that are allowed to, or even given the, the semblance of being able to get their gold back, are actually nation states. If the people can't do it, I argue that's not even backed by gold. But regardless, that all ended in 1971 when nations actually said, I want my gold back. France even sent a battleship 
to New York City to claim their gold. And the U.S. defaulted. The U.S. said, you know, Nixon closed the gold window and said, we will not be, temporarily, we will not be redeeming gold for U.S. dollars or treasuries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, basically, all the, uh, all the nations that had gold with uh, the United States could no longer get it. So my argument is that since Executive Order 6102, the dollar has not been backed by gold um, for in any real sense of it. But even if you wanted to say it was, it absolutely 100% ended in 1971. So now if you ask an economist or a politician or whatever it is what the dollar is backed by, they will say the full faith and credit of the United States government which is a very, very political way to say absolutely nothing. First off, just on its face, what is faith and credit? Faith is trust, a belief, and credit is a reputation. Neither one of those things are real backings, particularly when there's hardly an institution that deserves less faith and uh, less of a good reputation uh, for lying and corruption as the United States government. I mean, who... Who has abused their ability to print dollars and issue and monetize their own debt more on the face of planet Earth than the United States government? I, I genuinely don't think there is one that has done it to the degree. They have abused the shit out of the dollar world reserve currency status. But even if you think that the faith and credit is of some value, um, it still isn't a real backing. It's not as if I can go redeem it for like a part of the concrete that makes the Federal Reserve building if my dollars are suddenly uh, coming up as less valuable today. Those things are as ethereal, as completely arbitrary abstractions as just about anything. The faith and credit of the Venezuelan government hasn't, hasn't kept any value whatever of the Venezuelan, uh, of the Venezuelan Boulevard. Argentina, Zimbabwe, Lebanon, these things, regardless of how many buildings they have or how much crap they supposedly can quote-unquote back it by, this isn't a stock in a company where you can sell off the assets later and then get your share out of it. No, it has nothing to do with that. The government is never going to let you sell their buildings so that you can get some value out of, out of their currency. They are just going to rob you blind until it's zero, and they're still going to claim that you are the problem. Faith and credit means jack all. And it will not save a penny. It will not save a thousandth of a penny. It will not save a billionth of a penny in a paper note's value if the, the, if the government institution loses trust and the reputation falls to zero. So does the currency. It will be worth more to wipe your ass with it than it will be to use it as money. So just to be perfectly clear, to say that a dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government is to say there is no backing. There is nothing behind it but your trust in the government. And they bolster that trust, they reinforce that trust with violent enforcement. It's artificially enforced or it's it's artificially propped up in the market if i don't accept dollars as a business if i don't accept dollars as a means of paying off some debt that someone else has owed me i am literally it is literally against the law for me to do that i am uh, they can come punish me they can put me in a cage they can fine me 
all of these things. So that gives the illusion that I trust the currency when in fact I do not. Now that's obviously not the average person's situation. They grow up listening to the propaganda of the government that they live under. They grow up being taught the history that is supportive of the government they live under. Their government, their currency, their nation is the default and everything else is only proportional or only comparable in relation to how it affects their government, their country, and their people, et cetera, et cetera. That is always the way of you know, growing up in a nation. Your nation is all that's important. Your rulers are the rulers, and everybody else is just related to how it affects your country and your ruler. You know, everybody else is, I mean, everybody is the, the hero of their own story. Same thing for countries. So by default, the, the people in the country are a subset of built-in, default, propagandized demand for that country's currency. So what are those country, the excuse me, what are those currencies really, quote-unquote, backed by? They are backed by the economy that uses them, that trusts them. That's it. That's it. That, that is all that ever backs a money is the market economy and the users that are willing to sell goods and services for it. The labor that is willing to accept Bitcoin, the labor that is willing to accept the dollar, the goods that are willing to trade for Bitcoin or the dollar or the lira or whatever it is. The economy that accepts the currency and trusts that it is a good monetary instrument is what backs the money, period. And what's funny is that that actually alludes to why Bitcoin is not only a very real money, but actually more real and more reliable than a national currency. Because a national currency is inherently not backed by anything. It's backed by the trust and the reputation of it being sound. And national currencies have about the shittiest degree of reputation and trust that you can have in regards to that. But unfortunately, it's the only way that we can get a digital currency, that we can get a, an intangible one that's actually tradable in you know, the digital age, in, a, in an economy that, runs, that moves faster than the speed of uh, physical coins. So what really backs any currency or any monetary good in the digital age, in the age of abstraction, is trust and reputation. And I think that applies both to a digital money that is that an institution has, you know, gold in a vault somewhere and they issue notes in relation to it. You are trusting the reputation and the credit of that that reserve holder. And I think it's both true of a digital asset that is purely digital, like Bitcoin. And its ability to remain a sound monetary good that has rules that apply to everyone equally. And where there are no imbalances, there are no special privileges, there is no, there is no unbacked currency being created, that there's an explicit set of rules and an explicit monetary policy, and that we trust that that monetary policy is consistent. I think there is a very strong indication when you really look at it that that is exactly the truth of a private institution that tries to back it by some commodity or gold or silver or wheat or whatever the hell you want it to be, by uh, it's true of a country 
If it tries to back it with gold or a commodity or with the full faith and credit of that government institution, which just means that even if we back it by nothing, can we be trusted to have a sound monetary policy regardless? And I think it's true when we are talking about cryptocurrency, when we are talking about Bitcoin and a digital asset that has its own programmatic monetary policy and how well we can trust that it will remain the same as it is programmed to do. How consistent is it? How easy is it to cheat? Is it cheatable at all? And how long has it maintained uh, the trust in that monetary, that monetary base? I do think those things are valuable. I do think the trust in reputation is real. That's why I think fiat currency works for a relatively long time. It's very short in the context of previous monies. Like when you're comparing it to gold or silver or rye stones or any of these other, you know, the monies of history, it actually lasts for a very short amount of time. I think the average lifespan of a fiat currency is somewhere around like 21, 23 years, something like that. But nonetheless, it works for around 20 years, sometimes 30 years, sometimes 50 years. There are ones that will actually last for a moderate amount of time. And I think that is proof that a completely virtual asset, a completely virtual monetary good is perfectly viable. It does work. But the problem is, if it's run and quote-unquote guaranteed by a central institution run by humans, the corruption and the power of owning the money of an economy, of actually controlling the reins of the monetary policy, is simply too great to pass up, and therefore the reputation and the trust will always be abused, period. They do not fail until the abuse gets so great that the reputation cannot stand up, the trust cannot stand up, even in spite of violence trying to keep it there. That is when fiat currency fails. When the, the complete degradation of the trust and the reputation in that government institution is so bad that it outweighs even the fact that people will be punished, will be physically harmed, for not accepting the trust and reputation of that institution. Now, I want to go back to a episode we listened to, we listened to that I read recently. Um, uh, the it is Bradley Rettler's piece on another way to think about the value of Bitcoin. And something I brought up in the guy's take after that episode was that all value is actually in knowledge. All real value is truly just an abstraction of what we can do with something in the real world. There is no such thing as intrinsic value. If I hand you an engine without the extrinsic knowledge of how to use that engine and what to do with it and what to fuel it with and how to acquire that fuel, etc., etc., I've just given you a, what basically looks like a really weird rock. And it's really heavy and annoying to deal with. Nobody wants one without the knowledge of how to use it. The knowledge is what's valuable. And the knowledge itself of how to make an engine, how to acquire the metal and the steel and the, uh, all the things needed to put that engine together is immensely valuable on its own without the actual engine because it gives you the ability to create one. It is the design. It is the idea. It is the way to use it. 
that it's truly valuable and that it's true of everything. None of it has intrinsic value. And uh, Rettler actually argues from a philosophical perspective, and that's why I really loved his piece, is that the only thing that actually has intrinsic value is the thing is a thing that has value in and of itself. Meaning that when I say, oh, you could achieve this, or this is what X will get you, you don't then have to ask, well, what's the value of X? Why do I care about X? So in that context, the only thing that actually has intrinsic value is happiness. It is human happiness. Gold doesn't have intrinsic value because you can use it for jewelry, because why do you want jewelry? What's the What's the purpose of jewelry? What's the purpose of shiny things? What's the purpose of making a piece of metal? It's like, oh, well, you make a piece of metal so that I can have this machine that does something and makes me more productive and I can earn more money. It's like, well, what's the point of earning more money? Well, it means I can trade more for other people. It's like, well, why do you want to trade more? What do you want to trade for? It's like, well, I can get this thing. I can get this sandwich and I'll be happy at the end of the day because I won't be starving and instead I'll be satisfied. It's like, oh, so what you get is happiness. And it doesn't matter how many steps you go between a and human happiness that's what you're trying to get you're trying to get some sort of satisfaction you're trying to get something that simply betters your life and satisfies you and that's the one thing that has intrinsic value happiness is valuable for for the pure sake of happiness everything else only has extrinsic value <clears throat> excuse me extrinsic value in relation to how well it can achieve either directly or indirectly some other means that will eventually culminate in granting us or achieving greater happiness. So gold does not have intrinsic value. If you don't know what to do with it, you don't know how to work with it, you don't know anything about it, it has no intrinsic value whatsoever. Steel doesn't have intrinsic value. A good example I used just because it was so... it the the switch between when it was not valuable to when it was valuable was so great was oil. And that's the story I like to tell is that oil supposedly has some monumental intrinsic value. And yet for literally thousands, tens of thousands of years, it's essentially since the agricultural revolution in particular, oil was the worst thing you could ever find. Oil was a disaster. It was the bane of human existence. If you were trying to grow crops and then oil came up out of your ground, you're screwed. It, it, was, it was not simply something that had no value. It was poison. It was a horrific thing to find on your land because it destroyed the value of your land. It destroyed your ability to feed yourself. It destroyed everything that you were trying to, trying to do in order to achieve human happiness. But then suddenly, towards the end of the 18th century, or excuse me, 19th century, the 1800s, we figured out that you could actually use oil as fuel. And in a span of about 40 years, it went from about the worst thing you could find in your cropland to about the best thing you could find bubbling up out of your ground. What changed? Was oil more intrinsically valuable afterward? Well, that doesn't make any sense. It's antithetical to the idea, the very name, intrinsic to the very word of intrinsic value it can't change what changed the knowledge the actual value of how to use that thing the information of what oil was and what we can do with it in order to achieve human happiness so what is the value in the knowledge of bitcoin if all the value is knowledge is if all value is 
extrinsic in the way that it can help us to achieve some other ends and how that good or how that service or product or whatever it is relates to something else we hope to achieve. Bitcoin has immense value in what it is and what it can achieve. For those people who use money that doesn't hold its value at all, who use the Lyra, the Peso, the Bolivar, for those who are forced to use a money run by people that have absolutely abused its trust, that have leveraged its reputation to gain power and subjugate entire populations, Bitcoin is a godsend. They don't have to know how it works, why it works. It simply holds value better than the Lyra. Done. Why does it do that? No idea. Who cares? It simply does. Maybe I live in a country where cross-border payments represent 40% of the GDP. The average size of remittances is $50, and the average fee from that is $15. But I have to wait in line for hours, take a bus ride into town, I have to stop what I'm doing, and, I'm, and even to move the money around after getting it is a, ha- is a huge hassle. And of course, it comes with fees at every step along the way. Even worse, my bank might freeze my account they did to my friend. And I can't send to another bank without going and getting cash out, and I have limits on that. There's no real fintech. There's no apps in my country. And I am, worst of all, I'm subject to a foreign power that debases my money and manipulates the interest rates in my country, and I get no representation. But maybe I can send money with Bitcoin. Maybe I can send it for a penny instantly anywhere in the world over lightning, and I can receive the same way. How? Why? I don't care. It works right now, and it keeps working. And no bank is able to shut it down. My account has yet to be frozen. I have trusted it for the last six months. I've trusted it for the last year. And that trust has been rewarded and it continues to operate. The knowledge and the value in what I can do with Bitcoin and what it enables as an independent open source monetary network that, is, that has no jurisdictions and exists everywhere at the exact same time around the globe is massive. That value alone, take everything else out of it, that value is extraordinary. So let's talk about networks. Some of the most valuable things today are the networks that we use. Networks connect people. They give a common foundation for people to work from in order to communicate. The ability to communicate between two people properly means that together they are able to produce more value and this is actually an exponential ability. The ability to get more, to coordinate more and more people is the ability to produce value above and beyond what any one of those individuals added together can do by themselves. The value of communication and organization is immense. It is exponentially greater than that which any individual can do by themselves. Imagine what you would be worth without the guy who can design a computer or a circuit or the guy who can design a chip or the girl who can code up the program that you're using or the person that invented the engine that got that computer from where it was made to where you purchased it or the person who built the store and designed the store and designed the way that the nail uh, actually holds into a lighter wood. 
or the one who created just the right gear that will actually make that engine more efficient, or the person who set up the electrical grid that allows you to turn this thing on and charge it, or the person that figured out how to convert it from AC to DC, or the person that makes your food so that you don't actually have to spend all your time growing and cultivating and cooking and cleaning and dressing all of the different things that make up your sandwich. All you have to do is purchase it, and you can accomplish one thing. You can specialize in a single thing, while billions, literally billions of people throughout history and throughout today in the economy can work together to produce all of the other things that you will simply trade for that one specialized thing that you do. That is the excess value of coordination and organization above and beyond what an individual can do. What you can do as an individual is simply what you can accomplish naked, alone, in the woods with your bare hands. Everything else we do and accomplish is because we were able to trade and coordinate efficiently with other people in the economy. People we have never met, people we do not know, people we may hate for every other possible stupid reason. For their race, their religion, what their opinion about COVID is, whatever other bullshit that we want to hate each other for, we can still work together and their benefit, their value in society is added to mine. That we multiply each other's productivity and we actually work towards a joint goal through the actions of trade and communication. That is the value of networks. They are immensely valuable. They are the foundation of society. Language is a network. Without it, how the hell does one have a podcast? How do you do anything, literally anything, without the ability to replicate an abstract idea or an organization of physical objects from my brain to somebody else's brain or from theirs to mine, whatever the design or the idea is, without the ability to quickly and efficiently repeat those patterns in other people's heads, what do you, what, you're going to accomplish nothing. The, the efficiency and productivity of human society drops 99.999% and that's probably being generous. Phone networks. The ability to communicate all the way across the country in an instant. Social media. The ability to uh, rapidly iterate on ideas. To quickly share knowledge for things to go viral. Stupid, angry, hateful, happy, productive, incredible, fascinating ideas. All of it. Doesn't matter. All of it. The internet. What would, we, what would be, we be able to accomplish today in the same magnitude, at the same speed, and to the same degree that we can with the internet if we did not have it? Networks are monumentally valuable. Bitcoin is a network of high trust, of high reputational integrity that is able to communicate and trade value. Communication in general, the ability to have a language, is the backbone of being able to produce and translate value. But the ability to actually transfer, to actually move and coordinate that value is dependent on the money. That is the job of money in a society. The value of sound money is on the order of equal to the value of a common language. 
maybe even more. That's a, that's a difficult one to break down because one's kind of a prerequisite for the other. I don't know. I don't know. That's a tough one because if you think about it, like different countries that trade, speak entirely different languages, have entirely different cultures, are still able to actually work with each other, um, though without someone to actually bridge who can speak both languages, that trade is very inefficient. But with a common money, without having to actually trust each other, and you can trust the totem, the, the monetary good like gold, I mean, that's, that's what makes us one economy versus many disparate economies. So I don't know. I don't know. There's an argument to be made there. I'd be curious. Okay. I need another coffee. Um, let's take a break right here and hit our sponsor. And next... I want to talk about the value in trust. Everybody already knows Swan Bitcoin is the place to go for your automatic Bitcoin savings plan. I automatically buy Bitcoin every single week and I have it automatically sent to my cold storage. I'm also, of course, a big fan of their smash buy button whenever Bitcoin's taking a dip. It is the stacking service. But they also have a much more personal service for high net worth individuals and institutions, Swan Private. This is a high-end service for those who want a stronger foundation for their Bitcoin entry point and have significant amounts of capital to deploy. One-time purchases of up to $10 million with no annual limit, you get the hardest, most reliable monetary good on the planet, has direct access to the Swan team, guidance for self-custody, for tax assistance, retirement account guidance, and more. This is the best client services you can get for possibly the greatest asymmetrical bet of our lifetimes. Go to swanbitcoin.com guy and click on Swan Private right at the top for more information. So what is trust worth? What is a high reputation worth? What's the difference in the amount someone would pay for a bank that has an awful reputation, that freezes accounts, that is unreliable, that uh, confiscates or haircuts people's capital, versus and you know one that runs as a huge fractional reserve, versus one that's fully reserved, that has a very high reputation, that is very, very strict about their customers' privacy, and is always on top of their concerns. What's the difference in the price of those two services? What does it mean for one to be high trust, to have a high reputation versus a low reputation? I would argue that whatever the cost of the service is, is the difference between those two. It's 100% because no one wants to use that other service. The only time that they do is when they are forced to or through lack of option. What about reviews on something like Amazon or, you know, just any, any website, of, you know, uh, the, um, what's the, Yelp, that's the one I'm thinking of, Yelp or Amazon or Google reviews, somebody who has an awful reputation, really low scores. What's the difference between, you know, you know what, if, what if that other person with the low reputation even offers a free service, but every single review they have is a complaint? It's some terrible thing that has happened or awful experience or just some headache. Is that even worth free? What about why a bank or a financial institution even tries to have reserves in the first place? What's the point of that? It's a way to prove trustworthiness. If you have a billion dollars in 
user account balances and you have a billion dot and you can prove or show that you have a billion dollars in reserves that's a way to gain trust it's a signal that you are responsible that your accounting is sufficient that it is it is spot on that you are accurate in the trades and the movement of capital that is being made that nothing is being cheated and that you are not um, unfairly benefiting or manipulating your position in this service to, to profit, to profit off the backs of your users. You're not putting the cost of your privilege onto the people that are using your service. What if you can guarantee all of that without the bank, without the reserve itself? You simply have a system, you have a bank that you can use where you know you can prove 100% that anybody who used it had to produce work, had to trade this validly on the network, that they could not arbitrarily get a deposit into that institution without trading goods and services or producing work for the network. And I don't mean that in the sense of proof of work, even though it literally means that in the case of Bitcoin, but just in the context of a bank network that does not have a bank behind it, if we could just handle all of the accounts and we could prove that someone had to trade, that there was no other way to get the balances in the accounts at that bank, what would that be worth? You know, everything in the bank already is not backed by anything. It's all, all we use are digital points. The question is how reliable and trustworthy are those digital points. In that context, the bank is just a vulnerability. It's just a point of failure. It's not a benefit. It's simply needed to be there so that there was something to trust because there was no alternative way to produce a sound system, to do the accounting for everyone to actually be on the same page about what is going on in the bank. We were forced to rely on a bank. In order to get that service, to get that actual network in the digital space, we had to rely on a central authority. It was the only way to get a consistent set or state of the network. It was the only way to achieve consensus. We had to use an authority. We do not anymore. That is the breakthrough. And at the same time, we have not only simply recreated the same sort of consensus that we got with an authority, we now have consensus that is provably better than what we had with the authority. Orders of magnitude better than what we have with the authority. There is no subjectivity. There is no corruption. We can prove that it worked. We have absolute proof of the truth of the Bitcoin system all day, every day, and all it takes is for us to run a piece of software on our computer to know with absolute certainty that we have achieved that. That isn't just the value of the bank itself. It's the value of getting the bank without having to pay for the bank and fixing all of the problems that come with the authority of a bank. Now think about it in the context of property titles. So what about property titles in a corrupt regime? This, this is something that happens particularly in... Um, kind of in Latin America, there's like, I think uh, there's some, a lot of stories about this happening in Honduras, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, I can't ex- I can't remember exactly which jurisdiction I read um, a piece about all of the corruption around property titles is that because the the government, the regime itself is so unbelievably corrupt, they literally just go into the city records. They go into the federal and um, like district records and the corrupt officials literally just sign property over to other people. So somebody that um, like just, you know, a crony or uh, somebody in the cartels that they want to please, uh, a politician that they want to pay off, anybody, literally, the, they will just go in and somebody else will own this waterfront property. And then they just go in and they, they, they erase the name and they give it to somebody else. And there's no recourse. Like they are the authority over who owns what. Their property title doesn't mean shit. What's the value of a property of, of a system of property that can be transferred and cannot be cheated? That there is no authority that has the ability to erase your signature. That simply is not subject to that corruption. And the value held in that property exist everywhere on the planet all at the same time. So even if your jurisdiction does become unfriendly and does try to cheat you, you can simply exit. You can leave and you can take it somewhere else. What is the value of a service that can prove it cannot be corrupted? It can prove that it has a high reputation, that it accounts for everything top to bottom every single minute of every single day that it proves its high reputation is worthy by showing its entire history to know without a shadow of a doubt that it has never violated or even slightly bent the rules and principles of the system. If we could somehow achieve that in any financial institution, what would that be worth? What would that institution be worth versus its neighbors? What would that bank be worth versus all the other banks? What would those property titles be worth versus any other property titles? And if that institution was globally accessible and also had a network in which you could move that value instantly anywhere in the world for essentially no cost, what, what is the value of that just as a company? What does that look like? All right. Next, I want to talk about the value of unforgeable costliness. This is a, I highly recommend uh, The Origins of Money by, or Shelling Out to The Origins of Money by Nick Zabo. It is one of the prerequisites, I feel like, to entering and, and really getting a philosophical foundation for the history of money and the foundations of how to think about Bitcoin and how to understand its value as a digital good versus a tangible good. So the question is, when we talk about tangible monies, like gold, silver, and you know all, all these other monies of the past, the rye stones that I talk about, the wampum, the seashells, and the glass beads of the African coast, all of these different things that have become money and then failed as money throughout history, what were the common elements? What was the most critical thing that allowed it to achieve its monetary premium and continue to work as money? Something that is so critical to a monetary good is something called unforgeable costliness. The reason a money can become a money, everything that is money, by definition, holds a monetary premium. 
So when people say something has to have utility value, like gold, I have to be able to use it in electronics or some stupid crap, that the reason uh, gold is defined as money or the reason we know that gold is money is explicitly because it holds a premium on its value above and beyond its use in electronics. Not because it can be used in electronics and therefore we can sell it. That's 2% of its value. That's like a tiny fraction of anything that it is actually worth. And it would not maintain its current value at $8 trillion or $10 trillion, whatever it is, with just because it can be used in electronics. It's explicitly because its value has increased and it is able to maintain that excess value. Because anything that does not have sufficient unforgeable costliness would then collapse. Like if, let's say, for instance, we figure out how to very cheaply knock a neutron and a proton off of mercury. Gold loses its monetary premium immediately. Let's say it costs roughly $50 to turn uh, an ounce of mercury into an ounce of gold. Technology has officially destroyed gold's unforgeable costliness and now its equilibrium price is $50 and that's the most it can ever be because if it ever goes up to $100 people then obtain mercury to get more gold this was also true of things like uh, like historical monetary goods that were very isolated where the technology of the culture that used them made them incredibly difficult to achieve. They had an unforgeable costliness until some new technology came along that destroyed it. A great example is the African beads along the west, uh, the west coast of Africa. Is these, these were glass beads that were created that were, that were very rare, they were precious, and it took a long time to, to forge and create these beads so they worked as a good monetary um, representative, a monetary abstraction. They became this show of generational value, and they got traded and passed around. And it was explicitly because they were very difficult to forge. Because of this, it was not profitable to keep trying to make the beads themselves, and instead it made more sense to trade them for some other good, to make clothing or leather or uh, build, a, build a house or... Um, you know, till land, whatever it is, whatever the service, the good, the labor, other than making more money, it was more valuable. It made more sense to simply trade for the beads because the beads were harder to forge than the good you were trading them for. That is why it was able to maintain its status as money. When did it fail? When the British came to the African coast, they had the technology to produce these beads in mass back in the United Kingdom, or Britain at the time, obviously. It was not unforgeably costly for them to produce this same thing that they used as money. And what did they did do? Over the next century, they essentially pillaged all of the value out of the African coast. Uh, uh, damn near out of the whole continent, really. They, they used them to buy slaves, they bought goods, they bought resources, and they literally just inflated the monetary good away. Slowly but surely traded all of the real resources that still were difficult to create for one that was incredibly cheap and easy to create for them and their technology. It lost its unforgeable costliness and therefore it died as a monetary good.
what if you could prove unforgeable costliness in a digital token? You had a network that you knew. You could measure exactly how much work was required to produce them, and the network actually managed itself the relative difficulty of creating them so that it would always balance out. No matter how hard you tried to create more Bitcoin, no matter how many resources thrown at the network, no matter whether we devote $100 worth of mining power or we devote every single computer on the planet simultaneously, the network self-adjusts so that it has an explicit and unchanging monetary schedule. What if you could prove unforgeable costliness where before all it ever was was implied or entrusted, I guess you could say, in the physical characteristic of the commodity. Gold can lose it. It's not going to anytime soon, I don't think, but it can in the future. If it becomes too easy to produce an ungodly amount of energy, we could irradiate lead even, uh, I mean, excuse me, we could uh, irradiate um, mercury and even go so far as lead. We could go probably a couple of neutrons up and turn it into gold. And if it ever becomes cheaper than gold the money itself, we will just produce more of it until that is no longer the case. Now there's another thing that Nick Szabo talks about, and this is one of my favorite concepts around monetary goods and what a money does in a society, is the value in social scalability. This is deeply tied into the value of networks, but it also is about the ability to maintain a common set of rules. You know, the, the rules themselves are not always, I mean, they, they absolutely matter. But to some degree, the very fact that we have a common set of rules that we can agree on or a common set of values is better than having no ability to agree on them. In the same way that it makes more sense or that it is far more valuable to have the same grammatical rules and the same lingual tendencies and the same definitions of words, then it matters that they're totally comprehensible or consistent. You know, English is a bit of a mess of a language. It's, it's an amalgamation of so many other different languages. It's, it's like this thing that just is kind of spit out after you blend French, uh, 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 blend French and German and uh, English, like all of these different languages together. It's, it's one of the few languages that has multiple words derived from many different languages about the same object or action. Like fire is of German origin and then flame is French origin, but they mean the same thing. English is one of those languages that just has so many different words for the exact same thing because it integrated a word or pronunciation from so many different Romance languages. And it's also why spelling in English can be such a disaster, why pronunciation of one word can mean one thing and, uh, or can be one set of rules and then completely different for something else and you're supposed to remember that, oh, here is the, the vague rule, and then about 30% of the time there's some ridiculous exception, and just memorize all of those. If you've ever uh, watched, uh, there's a really great 
comedy rant by Gallagher. Uh, it's Gallagher in the English language, and I always loved it. It's a, it's a great way to illustrate how absurd sometimes the rules of a language can be. Um, but it's absolutely hilarious. I, I, I highly recommend watching it. Just look it up on YouTube, Gallagher and the English language. But all of this is just to explain that it doesn't really matter quite. It doesn't always matter what exactly the rules are. But having a common set of rules that is consistent and reliable is far more important than having the perfect rules, mostly because there is no such thing as the perfect rules. But a consistent and reliable set of rules enables social scalability. It means that where we differ in some other way, where we don't speak the same language, where we don't share the same culture, values, does not matter as long as we can keep the, the means that we interact with each other based within the rules that we know we have the exact same relationship with. And it is what enables us to bridge across those cultural differences, those value differences, our differences in identity or race or just what to be concerned about from day to day. It removes the subjective reasons, the subjectivity in our lives and in our interactions and gives us this, this objective totem to lean on so that the subjective crap doesn't get in our way and we can still work together. It's like the metric system and the traditional system um, or the, I can't remember what it's actually, it's actually referred to something else. Um, what is that? What is that word? It doesn't matter. The, the metric system versus, you know, inches and feet versus um, meters and centimeters and decimeters and uh, millimeters, all that stuff. Like, obviously, the feet, the mile, the inch, the like, like all that, that whole system is, uh, is kind of ridiculous. But it doesn't really matter that it's ridiculous if we're all still just using inches and feet, like, you know, as long as all the builders are using the same one, it's a little bit arbitrary how stupid the system is, as long as it's usable. A common set of rules is of immense value because it's exactly what enables us to coordinate our activities. A common totem for value is what enables all economic organization. That is the foundation for why a society emerges, why an economy emerges in the first place. It is the basis of civilization. Money did not come after we created society. Money is what enabled us to organize into societies. A strong monetary good is a prerequisite for civilization. Bitcoin is a perfectly consistent set of rules. Arguably one of the only perfectly consistent set of rules that we have anywhere. Languages are a mess sometimes. Laws are a disaster of confusion and contradiction. Cultural values are all over the place. People lose which ones to actually care about and which ones to prioritize. We're at each other's throat about stupid crap like that all the time. Having a totem where you know it can't be cheated where you know there is no authority or central point of failure that could abuse or rewrite what those rules mean to somebody in some certain jurisdiction versus another, that there is no arbitrary difference between one and another, 
that it treats everybody equally before that system, that is a profoundly valuable network and set of rules. Ultimately, what quote-unquote backs Bitcoin, what establishes its value, is a culmination of many different things together. It is the creation of a common economic and legal Legal in the sense of a set of property rights that has no legal jurisdiction. It simply exists everywhere and 100% proves itself that we have a common economic and legal truth. It is the value that we all have in uh, having a universal time standard, a clock that we can all organize our actions by. Bitcoin is ultimately a financial clock, an ownership clock. Uh, a really great piece to dig into this is Dergigi's Bitcoin is Time. Fascinating piece talking about why it is that proof of work is a decentralized clock. It's the value, Bitcoin's value is the value in having a common language. It's the value in having a common communication protocol and everyone connecting over TCP IP, even when you might, might speak Spanish and I speak English. It's the value in a common set of rules where we know we can do business with each other. We can make a contract that applies to me exactly the same way it applies to you. There's no TPP agreement. There's no subsidy. There's no uh, you know, previous war that somebody has to pay back. There's no privilege. There's no arbitrary borders where the money itself gives only one person the ability to move it or some unseen advantage over another. There's no central authority. There's no jurisdiction. Nothing. There is a clearly defined and absolutely proven set of rules that no one can cheat and everybody acts in perfect sync with. It is the value in knowing 100% without question what the outcome of a contract will be and never having to question the bias of an enforcer or some interpreter or some legal jurisdiction or whether or not the laws will change or the, the judge is going to be in your favor or the others. It's the value of having a network of people that will accept and transact using this same standard. The value of a set of rules and of a financial system that you can prove for yourself without trusting a single other person that it has not been cheated and cannot be cheated. It's the value in being able to move money around frictionlessly, to store value without having to trust some authority or custodian or government. It is the value in getting all of the benefits of gold, the unforgeable costliness, the hard, sound monetary policy, the ubiquitous units of measurements, the, uh, the infinite divisibility, all without having to deal without gold's limitations, its physical limitations, its geographical, its ease of geographical control and centralization. It is the value of provable, clearly established rules that you can trust without any master who can violate them. Bitcoin is backed by proving what the truth is. It is backed by establishing an incorruptible system of ownership where everyone in the world will reach the exact same answer to a subjective question. 
no one in the world can violate it, and the system itself establishes its own independent truth. All money is simply backed by the economic system that accepts it. Bitcoin is backed by the vast and growing economic network of people who accept it as their totem for truth. And the assurances that it can provide that will increase proportional to its scale and the number of people that use the network, that this truth will never be violated. That is a revolutionary value. All right. We've already hit an hour here. So uh, hopefully, I think, I think I hit all the topics I wanted to hit in this one. Um, we will probably be revisiting this in the future, but I just hope I've at least made it clear just how valuable a system like this actually is, how many different things it can actually replace and solve all of the significant problems of, or at least so many of the huge problems we have today with central authorities and abusing, uh, abusing a banking privilege, abusing a central authority as to who owns what, and abusing a set of rules that is inconsistent, contradictory, and ever-changing based on the special privilege and lobbyist of the day. The trust that Bitcoin is able to garner by being an immutable set of rules and monetary structure is extraordinary. And the more it continues to simply, consistently provide that base of rules and ownership, the more people will come to realize that there is nothing in the world that compares to it. As I say over and over again, all Bitcoin has to do is survive. With that, let's close this one out. Thank you guys for listening to Bitcoin Audible. Thank you so much to the Bitbox hardware wallet and swanbitcoin.com for, uh, for making this show happen and supporting my work. Uh, I love both of the guys, everybody on both of those teams, they do, they do literally Satoshi's work and they are providing amazing services and products to the space. Check them out at guyswan.com. Both of them are right at the top of the page. And I will catch you all next time on Bitcoin Audible. Do not forget to subscribe. So much more to come. I uh, hope to see everybody at uh, the conferences coming up. I'll be at the Bitcoin Standard Conference. Oof, Tuesday next week, I think I'll be heading out to Mexico. Really excited about that one. And then, of course, BitBlock Boom later in the month. So much exciting stuff coming. And, uh, yeah, I hope to catch you all then. Hit me up if you're going to be there, and uh, we'll, we'll get together and have a beer. With that, I'll catch you on the next Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, and until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.